Welcome to OCS Field Guide, the podcast that helps you study smarter for the OCS exam. Hello and welcome back to the OCS Field Guide podcast. Today we will wrap up our coverage of the 2017 Neck Pain Clinical Practice Guideline Update with the final two treatment-based classifications, neck pain with movement coordination impairments and neck pain with radiating pain. We'll cover these two classifications and along the way cover some important tests and a clinical prediction rule you should probably know. Let's jump right in with neck pain with movement coordination impairments. The first thing you need to know about this classification is that of all the classifications, it probably changed the most from the 2008 CPG to this version. This classification began as the exercising conditioning classification before being renamed movement coordination impairments, which goes along with the naming system for low back pain. This classification initially described patients with chronic symptoms greater than 12 weeks, cervical motor control, endurance, and strength deficits, flexibility deficits in upper quarter muscles, and ergonomic inefficiencies. However, in the CPG update, all of the new literature reviewed associated with this category was actually specific to patients with whiplash-associated disorder, so you'll notice a big shift in the focus of this diagnosis as well as the treatment sections toward managing patients recovering from trauma. You will also notice, however, in the new mobility deficits category, there is a much bigger focus on exercise addressing these same kind of strength, motor control, and endurance deficits in the chronic stage, in addition to manual therapy. So I believe that in the new classification definitions, mobility deficits has actually taken over some of the patients that would have formerly fit into movement coordination impairments due to chronicity that would actually benefit more from including manual therapy strategies in addition to the strong exercise focus. All that to say, the 2017 CPG update focuses primarily on whiplash or some sort of trauma as the mechanism of injury for the movement coordination impairment section. So without further ado, the common symptoms that should lead you to classifying a patient as having neck pain with movement coordination impairments are mechanism of onset related to trauma or whiplash, associated or referred shoulder girdle or upper extremity pain, associated varied nonspecific concussive signs and symptoms. This can include dizziness and nausea, headache, concentration or memory difficulties, confusion, hypersensitivity to mechanical, thermal, acoustic, odor, or light stimuli, and heightened affective distress. The expected exam findings should include positive cranial cervical flexion test, positive neck flexor muscle endurance test, positive pressure algometry, strength and endurance deficits of the neck muscles, neck pain with mid-range motion that worsens with end-range positions, point tenderness that may include myofascial trigger points, sensory motor impairments that may include altered muscle activation patterns, proprioceptive deficit, and postural balance or control deficits, and neck pain and referred pain reproduced by provocation of the involved cervical segments. 
Let's pause here to go over the specifics about three of those tests. The cranial cervical flexion test, the neck flexor muscle endurance test, and pressure algometry. The cranial cervical flexion test is more of a motor control test of the deep neck flexor muscles. The patient is in supine with a pressure biofeedback cuff under their neck inflated to 20 millimeters of mercury. The patient must initiate cranial cervical flexion sufficient to increase pressure to 22, then 24, then 26, 28, and then finally 30 millimeters of mercury, holding each level 10 seconds with a 10 second rest in between. Successfully completing at least through the 26 millimeters of mercury level is considered a normal test, while abnormal would be either not being able to generate sufficient pressure to make it to the 26 millimeters of mercury level, being unable to hold for at least 10 seconds, or having significant muscle substitutions with superficial musculature during the test. The neck flexor muscle endurance test is similar, but doesn't require any equipment and is focused more on endurance. The patient is supine in hook lying and maximally tucks the chin and lifts the head an inch above the mat and holds as long as possible without losing that position. The clinician monitors the skin folds in the anterior neck and places a hand under the head. The test ends when a patient loses the chin tuck or touches the head down for more than a second. Average score for individuals without neck pain is about 39 seconds, while average for patients with neck pain is 24 seconds. Pressure algometry is a way to objectively measure pain pressure thresholds, but there aren't any specific cutoff scores mentioned, so we won't talk about it too much. But I did want to mention that this is a new test that is included in the update, and they recommend using it to classify pain presentations as having local mechanical hypersensitivity, aka lower thresholds only at the site of injury, in this case the neck, versus having global lowered pain pressure thresholds, which could clue you in to a central pain processing issue. Let's move on to treatment. If you've listened to the first neck pain CPG podcast on the clinical course of neck pain, you'll remember that traumatic onset neck pain typically follows one of three possible clinical courses. One, patients with mild disability and post-traumatic stress who will likely have full and quick recovery. Two, patients with moderate disability and post-traumatic stress who will have improvement but likely incomplete recovery. And three, patients with severe disability and post-traumatic stress who are likely to have chronic problems and incomplete recovery. Remember also that we used five constructs to determine if the patient will have a good or poor prognosis. High pain intensity on the NPRS, high self-reported disability on the NDI, pain catastrophizing, high post-traumatic stress, and cold hyperalgesia. For specifics on these constructs, refer back to the first neck pain CPG episode. In the acute stage, for patients who fit in any of the prognosis categories, the best evidence receiving a B-level recommendation is to educate the patient to return to normal, non-provocative 
pre-accident activities and activity level as soon as possible to minimize use of a cervical collar and to perform postural and mobility exercises in order to decrease pain and improve range of motion and to reassure the patient that significant recovery is expected to occur within the first two to three months. For the other recommended interventions, we can classify the patient as either low or high risk for chronicity using the information we just discussed. For patients at low risk for chronicity, there is C-level recommendation for providing one session of early advice exercise instruction, and education, and at least one follow-up including a comprehensive exercise program including strength and or endurance with or without coordination exercises and the use of TENS. For patients expected to experience moderate to slow recovery, there is B-level recommendation for a multimodal approach using manual mobilization and or manipulation plus exercise including strengthening, endurance, flexibility, postural, coordination, aerobic, and functional exercise, plus modalities such as ice, heat, and TENS. So to summarize, treatment in the acute phase should be focused more on education and gentle exercise, especially if the patient presents with mild symptoms, but you should be including exercise and manual therapy for patients that demonstrate higher pain, disability, and post-traumatic stress. For patients in the chronic phase, there is C-level recommendation that therapists may provide 1. Patient education and advice focusing on reassurance, encouragement, prognosis, and pain management. 2. Mobilization combined with an individualized progressive submaximal exercise program, including cervicothoracic strengthening, endurance, flexibility, and coordination using principles of cognitive behavioral therapy. And number three, TENS. You've probably noticed that TENS is recommended a number of times in this category. But remember, this is never recommended as a standalone treatment, but rather within a multimodal, active treatment approach. Now on to neck pain with radiating pain. The classification of neck pain with radiating pain is made when a patient presents with the following clinical presentation. Common symptoms including neck pain with radiating pain into the upper extremity, which is defined as a narrow band of lancing pain, and upper extremity dermatomal paresthesia or numbness and or myotomal muscle weakness. Exam findings should include neck and upper extremity symptoms reproduced or relieved with radiculopathy cluster testing. This includes positive upper limb neuromobility testing, pain reproduced with Sperling's maneuver, symptoms relieved with the cervical distraction test, and pain reproduced or relieved with cervical range of motion. Patients also may present with objective upper extremity sensory strength or reflex deficits. You may have recognized that radiculopathy cluster if you've been studying some of the diagnostic clinical prediction rules. The cluster they describe is a slightly more general take on a clinical prediction rule presented by Wainer et al. in 2003, which was positive upper limb tension test A, which is the median nerve bias, positive Sperling's, 
positive distraction test, and cervical range of motion of less than 60 degrees to the involved side. This is a good clinical prediction rule to know. However, I'll remind you that one of the goals of the CPG update was to move away from some of the CPRs like that that have not been fully validated. So that's why their criteria are a little more inclusive. And this just makes sense for a couple of reasons. The most sensitive of the upper limb tension test is upper limb tension test 1, or A, which is the median nerve bias. But that doesn't mean you won't have patients that do have radiculopathy, that due to which nerve root is involved, may have other positive upper limb tension tests. Also, on cervical range of motion, rotation range of motion of less than 60 degrees to the involved side may be more specific to radiculopathy, but you're probably going to miss some people that do have cervical radiculopathy if you take that more strict definition. Thus, the CPG keeps it a little more general and intuitive by saying neck and upper extremity radiating pain that is reproduced or relieved by cervical range of motion. As a bonus, let's go through how to perform the most need-to-know upper limb tension test. As we've said, the most sensitive upper limb tension test for cervical radiculopathy is upper limb tension test A, or the median nerve bias. So we'll cover that first. The patient is positioned in supine and placed in a series of positions that will progressively load the median nerve, while the therapist monitors at each point for onset of symptoms. First, the shoulder girdle is fully depressed, then the shoulder is abducted to 90 degrees, then the wrist and fingers are extended fully, then the forearm is supinated, and then the shoulder is fully externally rotated, then the elbow is slowly brought into full extension until the patient feels symptoms. At that point, you stop and maintaining that position at each joint mentioned, you have the patient first side bend the neck away from the test side and then toward this test side. The test is considered positive if this reproduces all or part of the patient's familiar symptoms. If there is a 10 degree or more difference in the amount of elbow extension achieved, or if on the symptomatic side, side bending the neck away increases symptoms, while side bending the neck toward the symptomatic side decreases symptoms. To repeat, the median nerve biased upper limb tension test is combining full shoulder girdle depression, shoulder abduction, wrist and finger extension, forearm supination, and elbow extension. In contrast, the ulnar nerve-biased upper limb tension test, or upper limb tension test 3, also begins with shoulder girdle depression, shoulder abduction, and wrist and finger extension. But then it differs in that the forearm is maximally pronated, and then the elbow is slowly flexed until the patient reports symptoms or end range is met, and then the neck is side-bent away and then toward. The final upper limb tension test to know is the radial nerve bias. This one is a little different, though it also begins with shoulder depression. The arm is then fully internally rotated and the forearm fully pronated. Then the thumb and fingers are flexed, and then the wrist is ulnarly deviated. Think of the wrist and hand in a Finkelstein's test position, and remember that this could cause pain in someone with Dequervain's tenosynovitis. Then the shoulder is slowly abducted until the symptoms are reported, or 90 degrees. Then side bend the neck away and then toward, taking note of symptoms each step along the way. 
I recommend, if you aren't already, to get comfortable with doing these tests over and over again in the clinic or on your unsuspecting housemate to get most comfortable with the positions. Rather than just memorizing all the positions, you'll get the most bang for your buck by knowing intimately the path of each of these nerves in the arm. If you know that, not only will these tests be intuitive, but you will also find that the peripheral mononeuropathies will be much easier to learn and retain. Let's head back to the neck pain with radiating pain classification to discuss treatment. Of all the areas, there has been the least update here from the 2008 CPG. So I'll repeat the 2008 CPG recommendations, which include B-level recommendation for upper extremity neural mobilization techniques, C-level recommendation that centralizing exercises are not beneficial in reducing disability compared to other interventions, and a B-level recommendation for combined intermittent traction with manual therapy, stretching, and strengthening exercise. The 2017 update separates interventions into acute and chronic categories. In the acute phase, the only recommendation is a C-level recommendation for treatment involving mobilizing and stabilizing exercise, low-level laser, and possible short-term semi-hard collar use. For the chronic category, there is B-level recommendation for a combined approach involving intermittent traction, cervical mobilization and stabilization exercise, plus cervical and thoracic mobilization and or manipulation. There is a second B-level recommendation for education and counseling that encourages engaging in occupational and exercise activities. This is a good time to include a clinical prediction rule derived by Rainey et al. in 2009 for patients likely to benefit from intermittent traction and exercise. The CPR includes five criteria age greater than or equal to 55, positive shoulder abduction test, which is defined as an alleviation of symptoms when the patient rests their hand on their head, which relieves tension on cervical nerve roots, positive upper limb tension test A, positive neck distraction test, and symptom peripheralization with PA testing of the lower cervical spine. This shares two constructs with the cervical radiculopathy cluster, positive neck distraction test, and positive upper limb tension test A. So that should be easy to remember and tell you how important those two tests are. If a patient has three or more positive, this has a positive likelihood ratio of about five. And if a patient has four or more, this has a positive likelihood ratio of 23, which translates to a post-test probability of 95% that the patient will have success with a combination of intermittent traction and exercise. In case you were wondering, the two exercises they used were a seated posture exercise where the patient is cued to sit up straight and hold that position repeatedly, and the supine deep neck flexor endurance exercise. We've covered a lot of information in this episode, so let's dive into a practice question that will make you apply the information covered in both treatment-based classification episodes. A 42-year-old male presents to an outpatient physical therapy clinic with a script for treatment of cervical radiculopathy. 
He reports having right-sided neck pain and pain around the back of his shoulder blade that sometimes extends into the right upper arm that began about three months ago. He reports not knowing exactly what started this, but that he had helped a friend move the day before. He denies any numbness, tingling, or weakness in his arms and reports that his PCP did a radiograph which showed that he has degenerative disc disease, but that no other imaging or testing has been ordered at this time. Your clinical exam reveals the following. Forward head and rounded shoulders posture. Cervical active range of motion limited in right rotation to 50 degrees and side bending limited to 20 degrees with right neck pain and upper arm pain reproduced. Neck and shoulder pain reproduced with segmental mobility testing at C6. Sperling's test reproduces right neck pain but not upper extremity pain. Negative upper limb tension testing. Normal dermatome and myotome testing. Reflexes are 2 plus in biceps, brachioradialis, and triceps reflexes, and the distraction test reproduces right-sided neck pain. What is the most appropriate treatment approach? Is it A, intermittent cervical traction and instructing the patient in postural exercise, B, deep neck flexor endurance exercise, and education on resuming normal pre-injury activities, C, perform thoracic manipulation and instruction in cervical mobility exercise, or D, intermittent traction and home TENS unit. Let's work through this case. This one is tricky because the patient comes in with a diagnosis of cervical radiculopathy, degenerative disc disease, and presents with upper extremity pain, but you still have to look at the patient presentation in front of you to determine your treatment strategy. The only history and clinical finding that would lead you toward classification of neck pain with radiating pain is neck and upper extremity pain reproduced with cervical range of motion. However, the patient has no neuroscience and has negative upper limb tension testing. It's also tricky because it requires you to know what a true positive Sperling's test and neck distraction tests are. A true positive Sperling's is one that reproduces a patient's familiar radiating or neuro symptoms. And in this case, it only reproduced local neck pain, which is also known as a positive quadrant test. And a positive neck distraction test is one that relieves or centralizes radiating pain rather than reproducing local neck pain, which it did in this case. So you can pretty confidently knock out answers A and D because you can't classify the patient as neck pain with radiating pain, which would lead you to perform intermittent traction. Answer B may be a good exercise and recommendation, but it does nothing to address the patient's objective range of motion deficit and is not the best approach for the presentation in front of you. Answer C is correct, thoracic manipulation and cervical mobility exercise, because this patient actually fits best in the chronic neck pain with mobility deficits category. It's important to note that neck pain with associated or referred upper extremity pain is one of the common symptoms associated with three of the classifications, mobility deficits, movement coordination impairments, and radiating pain. So, if a patient presents with neck and related arm pain, you can't automatically assume that they need cervical traction. Be sure you look at upper limb tension testing and look at true positive findings on the spurlings and the cervical distraction test to tease this out.
That wraps up our coverage of the 2017 Neck Pain Clinical Practice Guideline Update. Thanks for listening, and remember, the best way to ingrain this material is to apply it in the clinic. So this week, try to take one neck pain patient every day and apply the information from this classification system and see what happens. Thanks for listening to OCS Field Guide. Don't forget to subscribe and then head to physiofieldguide.com for practice questions and more resources.